Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Line up. So awesome. Yeah, Thanks. Finally made it. Thanks for taking the time out. We're up and recording now. But anyway, uh, Andrew, you are you're somewhere in the UK. Where where are you at about right now? I'm in Ascot, which is just outside of London. I don't like being in London too much because it's quite a toxic environment with all the pollution. So yeah, it's like what nine million something. Was it nine million people in London? I didn't realize it was that big. But there's a lot of people in London. It's like one of the biggest probably cities. more. It's overcrowded. Steamy. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, you know. I've kind of known about you for several years now, for I think three or four years, and you've got this fascinating story, and uh, I think it's just something that I think more people need to hear, obviously. And I know, I know you've been interviewed about this quite a bit and done a lot of stuff on there, but for us, the, the few listeners that may not know a little bit about you, can you tell us a little tell us a little bit about your background? And I know, are you pursuing, I think you know, I last saw you were pursuing a PhD in something related to your condition, if I'm not mistaken, or something similar. Yeah, I've applied for a number of PhD projects um, involved with looking at glioblastoma and uh, novel ways to treat it, including the ketogenic diet, Um, but also looking at cannabinoids. So that's another interest of mine. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about your history. Now, I've got a picture I just kind of generically threw up an astrocytoma because that's what I, my understanding is what you had was astrocytoma, which is a glial cell. Uh, as opposed yep. to a typical neuron, these are more support cells in the brain, and just like any cell, they can become cancerous. And the, you know, the uh, what was I going to say? The median survival rate for most adults is about two to three years, and so you wildly exceeded that. And so let's talk a little bit about you know just your your story about you know I guess who you are, how you grew up, you know, and then and then and then talk about us into getting the cancer diagnosis and what's gone on since that time. I know that's a it's a mouthful for you, but we'll go into that and then start to see where that leads us. Okay. Well, my life story. I was always very uh, sporty into health and fitness. Uh, that came about by having quite a serious eating disorder um, from a traumatic event that happened to me quite early in life. And then I just got into health and fitness as a way of remedying that i suppose you could say um because that was coming from quite a deep place quite um depressing thoughts i did have depression at one point but um it i i sought help for that and then i used exercise and nutrition to uh not have antidepressant medications and um, that was my way of treating myself. Uh, I then got into competitive badminton. So I played at quite a decent level, county level. Um, and then I went and studied, um, 
a degree on exercise nutrition and health sciences um, and decided to become a personal trainer after that um, and a nutritional therapist. So I was helping clients using the, um, <laughs> using what the kind of um, education that I was given on what was good nutrition and it was mostly just following a kind of a rainbow diet. So having as many beautiful colors as you could, or as many wonderful plants. And the more plants you include, the better. And I adopted that in my own diet. So I wasn't really eating that much meat at the time. Um, <laughs> but I was consuming what I thought was a, a healthy, healthy diet. Um, and I was I was pretty fit at the time actually. I was I thought I was pretty fit and healthy, but looking back, I was probably borderline pre-diabetic because I needed to eat every two to three hours. <laughs> and um yeah, I was doing I was instructing exercise classes as well. So I felt like I needed the the carb loading for that. Um so I must have had chronically elevated cortisol too from just all the physical training I was doing and the exercise classes around that. So I was trying to fit my own training into that. Um, and I was working at a um, quite a prestigious uh, members club called the Lensbury Club in a place called Teddington. It's quite a nice um, facility that has lots of athletes training there. And I was helping to train people who were very, uh, ambitious with their sporting and exercise goals. So, um, I was on, in quite a demanding job and not sleeping well. And then eventually to cut a long story short, eventually at that time, I was beginning to get these persistent migraine um, symptoms and I was having difficulties with my speech so I decided to uh, leave my job because I thought because I thought it was very stressful and I decided to do a master's in nutritional therapy and my symptoms weren't getting any better I was partly doing this course to find out what was maybe wrong with me so I had a load of tests, a load of lab tests to see what my health was like. Um, and it seemed I was correct with the um, maybe pre-diabetic idea because uh, my HbA1c was quite high and uh, my fasting blood glucose reading was pretty high too. So, um, And my cortisol readings were quite poor. Uh, I was getting really poor quality sleep at the time and just overworking myself. But interestingly, again, to cut a long story short, on this course, um, this master's that I was studying, I was halfway through and we learned about the ketogenic diet. This was tw early 2012. So, yeah, this is 2012. We learned about... Um, it, was, it was at the time when the paleo diet was just coming into fashion and kind of... Uh, at its peak, I guess you could say. And then I was introduced to, I was, I was fascinated by that because it had more meat than was in my current diet. And it, it was just a kind of a different way of thinking about 
nutrition. Um, so I started to adopt a paleo diet. Um, and I noticed my symptoms were getting a little bit better, but the headaches, the tension of my headaches was getting worse and worse. And so um, when I learned about the ketogenic diet, I found that very interesting, but it went completely against what I'd learned when I studied my undergraduate um, in nutrition, just about how it's, it can be high in cholesterol and saturated fat, um, which at the time was quite controversial. I guess it still is now, but we are better educated now as it's become more of a mainstream thing. And so over time, as I got into this course, my headaches were getting worse and worse. And I was trying to get to the bottom of my own, my own symptoms, as well as trying to treat these patients that I was seeing in the clinic as part of the course we had to do. We had to uh, have clinical hours where we were seeing uh, people coming in to treat them, to help them with their different situations, say PCOS or um, diabetes or whatever their problems were. And I was dealing with my own problems. So <laughs> it was an interesting situation. But uh, eventually, after a heavy gym session, um, one day I was coming back home from, uh, coming back home from that session after I'd been at university and my, the tension in my head just got worse and worse. And it was just like my head was going to explode. Um, <laughs> so I was on a busy train at the time, it was rush hour. And the the pain was just, it got so bad that I felt like, I felt like I was going to die on this train. Um, even talking about it now, even though it's over six years, it's quite an emotional thing because it's quite surreal thinking that I'm still alive now. But um, it then felt like I'd been smacked on the, back of the head, back and side of the head by a, a, a hammer as hard as someone could strike me with. Um, and then I just blanked out. And all I remember is before I blanked out, I was making strange yelping noises and <laughs> I'd lost complete control of my body. Um, so I can remember the initial phases, phases of what I now know was a, um, a brain hemorrhage and a several grand mal seizures that I was suffering after that. So I was rushed to hospital and I was going in and out of consciousness because I kept having these grand mal seizures. Um, every time I did, I always have a, a kind of a warning where I'd have a metallic taste in my mouth, lots of tingling, and I'd feel very dizzy, like the room was spinning. Um, and every time I thought I wasn't going to wake up, so... <laughs> Uh, it was a very strange situation. And then the doctors didn't really know what to think of it because I had a CT scan and there was so much blood from the hemorrhage that I'd suffered that they couldn't tell me what was wrong with me. Initially, I was told it was an arteriovenous malformation, which is um, 
it's you have a cluster of blood vessels wrapped around your major arteries in the brain. I guess that's how you'd describe it. Um, kind of an occlusion. Um, and, uh, that's life threatening. So I was quite, it was pretty, I would be terrified, but I was just so out of it because <laughs> I kept slipping out in and out of consciousness. I didn't know what was going on, but all I remember is my family was suddenly around me and they looked absolutely terrified. And then I was due to have an oper- some kind of operation, uh, emergency operation to resolve that issue. Um, but then I was told that it's not an arteriovenous malformation. It's actually a cavernous hemangioma and I don't need to have any operation. And I was told, oh, you could actually even maybe live with this your whole life because <laughs> it, it would be horrible because you keep having seizures, but <laughs> you could you could live with it, but we'd we'd advise operating. Um so then it my I just kept I, I my seizures were getting so bad that I did have the operation and after the operation I was still having horrific the operation was scary enough, but um, I was still having horrific seizures after the operation that I was told could be quite dangerous. So they put me on a huge amount of um, anti-epileptic drugs. I was on two different types. I was on Keppra and Epilim, um, which are kind of the standard ones. The reason I was on Epilim as well as Keppra is because my seizures weren't, weren't managed with Epilim with Kepra alone and uh, even on the maximum dose. So they put decided to put me on a very high dose of Epilim as well. Um, and then I was told, I was told six weeks after my operation, while I was still suffering with all these seizures, after I'd eventually got home from the hospital, um, I was told over the phone that, they'd made a mistake and I hadn't had, I had had, it was a cavernous hemangioma, but it was a, ca- a cavernous hemangioma that had over time, they would suggest, they'd suggested turn into a, an extremely vascular aggressive type of high grade, uh, astrocytoma. <laughs> um, so that was a huge shock to hear over the phone. And, then I was uh, I was also told they they didn't get all of the disease. So the, at first I thought it was this relatively benign condition, and then I was told it was this extremely aggressive brain tumor. And I was told this was on a Friday. I was told we've booked you an appointment for chemotherapy and radiotherapy on a Tuesday on Tuesday, and we'd advise you go straight into it. <laughs> So I had to wrap my head around this. Um, so I did go on to have, initially I did have some chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but as I was having it, I was still experiencing these horrible seizures and I was reading because that's all I could do at the time. So I was trying to educate myself as to what I was dealing with and I decided, I, I realized that my tumor was not chemosensitive 
even though these tumors aren't typically responsive to chemotherapy anyway. Um, I'd inquired about the genetic profile of the tumor and I found it wasn't, it, it was indicative of a, a poor prognosis and a tumor that was showing no signs of being sensitive to any of the standard of care. So I decided to stop having any chemotherapy and radiotherapy after that, which my oncologist wasn't too pleased with. <laughs> he said that it would likely, uh, I would likely have a recurrence within uh, a f a six months, he was saying, six months to a year. Um, if I if I didn't continue with the the chemotherapy, <laughs> um, but then I said, what what was the rationale behind that? Because it, for my, for that particular situation, it, I noted I noted that it doesn't really show much much benefit uh, for someone who's supposedly not chemosensitive, and his idea was, ah, oh, well just in case it might be, <laughs> or, or his idea was we'll blast it with as much, we'll give it as much chemotherapy as you can tolerate indefinitely and see if it becomes chemosensitive, which was a strange idea to me. And over this time, I went back to thinking about how I'd learned about the ketogenic diet and how it was applied for epilepsy and how there was some preliminary evidence suggesting it could benefit brain cancer patients. This was the same time that the book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease just came out uh, by Thomas Seyfried. I know you interviewed him. And uh, I read the book and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And I was still very skeptical. Um, so my idea was to, at that point, transition on to a therapeutic four to one ketogenic diet, uh, initially just to manage my seizure activity. Cause I was still just bed bound and not able to get out the house at this point. And my speech was, uh, labored. It kept coming and going. So I could either not think of words or I could not, I couldn't sound words out. Um, at this point. So I had to give myself speech therapy and work that, work that out too. But eventually, um, with the ketogenic diet, I, I actually went very aggressively, aggressively with it. And I went on a product called KetoCal. <laughs> so because I saw the animal studies were using KetoCal, I thought, well, wouldn't it be a great idea to think of myself as a rodent. <laughs> so I bought KetoCal off the internet and I, I struggled with it because it just made me feel absolutely horrible. And then I looked at the ingredients and I thought, this is just the worst possible thing, the worst possible things you could eat. How are these rodents doing so well with KetoCal? <laughs> um, mimicking a ketogenic diet, but, um, then I started to um, go to a, a normal kind of ketogenic diet. Um, so avocados, coconut oil, um, lots of eggs. Um, I did have dairy, but then I found I had problems with dairy eventually. So I cut dairy out because I was having migraines and I was 
puzzled because I heard that the ketogenic diet was uh, supposed to be this anti-inflammatory therapeutic diet and my symptoms were getting worse and my my seizures weren't improving. So I decided to then go for an uh, MCT-focused ketogenic diet, so basing on medium-chain triglycerides. And I found that I did better with that but if I included too many, um, too much plant foods, I suffered with these headaches and I kept having um, problems with my vision and my temporal arteries would flare up quite to the point where I'd end up in hospital quite a few times from collapsing. And um, so I, I embarked on an elimination diet um and i found that the more of the (laughs) the more of the strictly ketogenic foods that i'd known of the avocados the coconut oil the broccoli the more of those foods that i'd cut out the better i'd actually feel so then i was at the point of um just eating fatty cuts of meat and oily fish and I found that I felt much better <laughs> and my symptoms had completely gone and my seizures had gone from being grand mal seizures to being partial seizures. So I wasn't, I was no longer uh, going unconscious, which was nice because <laughs> that's terrifying. And uh, I was, my partial seizures were gradually improving. So I decided to see if I could come off this medication which was giving me suicidal thoughts at the time and just horrible horrible symptoms i noted that um i I, at this point i was having various lab tests and i was noticing some nutritional deficiencies and from my research i had proposed that these nutritional deficiencies may be from the medication i was on um so i decided and Interestingly, the the nutritional deficiencies you get from these anti-epileptic drugs can also make your seizure threshold worse, which is highly ironic. So I decided to um, supplement with uh, magnesium. And I found that that was a powerful thing to do because I noticed, again, another drastic uh, improvement in my symptoms and my cognition and my sleep quality got better which again improved my seizure threshold and I didn't feel like a zombie on the medication I then went on to having exogenous ketones after I found out about them I noticed another improvement I went back to doing exercise which used to be a it was a seizure trigger for me because I found the type of epilepsy I had was termed reflex epilepsy so there's always uh, it's a, like a stimulus response. There was always a known cause to it. I had a I kept a diary of all of my seizure triggers and uh, all of the things that helped me and all of the foods I was eating. So it's, it, when you have that kind of epilepsy, it's quite typical to keep a, a symptom and mood and food diary. So I now have a few years of just every meal I've ever eaten and foods that worked and ones that didn't. And, um, 
over two years after that, over two years, I eventually came off, was able to come off all of the medication because I had to come down very slowly. And I was having withdrawal seizures from coming down even, even very gradually off this medication. Um, but I'd noticed I'd become very attuned to even the slightest bit of seizure activity that I experienced. So I experimented with um, CBD oil and uh, I used a frankincense essential oil, which I still take under the tongue and that's very effective for me. The magnesium is extremely effective. Um, and I'm not on any medication now and my symptoms improve all the time, which uh, is quite something. And not only have my symptoms been improving, but my scans had been improving over time too. So there was, at the, in the area where there was still some disease left, there was uh, activity showing on a type of scan called... Um, MR spectroscopy. So it's a type of MRI scan that looks at the bioenergetics of the area of interest. So in my case, this was between the parietal lobe and the temporal and frontal lobe. So the tumor was in three different areas of my brain <laughs> across three different lobes. So my symptoms were... Um, my symptoms were involved in that area. Um, and over time, the, the signaling activity that was showing on the MRI spectroscopy was altered to the point where over time, we couldn't even detect anything in that area, um, which was quite significant. Um, but that seemed to be only at the point after I'd had hyperbaric oxygen therapy along with the ketogenic diet and fasting and uh having these exogenous ketones so yeah that's uh that's that was a few years ago now and uh now we are where we are andrew um your, your story is certainly fascinating i think there's a lot of different directions we could go with it um, and you mentioned that uh, you you read uh, Thomas Seafried's book and kind of started introducing some of that protocol towards your experience. Were there any other like professionals or doctors that you were working with closely as you navigated your journey? That's a great question because my the oncologist I saw initially was very against the ketogenic diet and told me in no uncertain terms that there was no science behind this and I could actually be harming myself rather than helping myself. So I didn't like that as an answer. So I explored a bit more and I found that there was a ketogenic diet conference um, going on a few months later. Uh, and that was with uh, Matthew's friends and the Charlie foundation. So every couple of years they have a conference uh it used to be either here or in the u.s and canada but now they're they've branched out to other areas which is great and at that conference i learned that um at a number of at, there were two hospitals that were doing ketogenic diet 
clinical trials, and I was really fascinated by this um, because I finally I finally found places that appeared to be supportive of the diet. So because I was uh, close to London, I decided to go to Charing Cross Hospital, where they were proposing to do a ketogenic diet trial for patients with high-grade glioma. And they were just very supportive of the diet. And that's where I had my MR spectroscopy, which um, is a nice way of monitoring efficacy of and progress on a ketogenic diet because it's actually showing you the substrates that are being taken up by the, the tumor area. So it's uh, it showed that my tumor was um, more glycolytic than some other brain tumors. So that, w- that in itself was quite nice, um, <laughs> showing me that that was a useful strategy. And my oncologist at Charing Cross, who I moved to, is very supportive of the ketogenic diet. And uh, then I was, became aware of the charity Brain Tumor Research, who put most of their money into metabolic therapies. And this was a very just unusual thing for me to hear from a cancer research charity. Um, so I decided to become a cancer researcher myself. Uh, so I went back to studying after I was, uh, after my symptoms had gotten to the point where I could do so. And, uh, that's a long way of answering your question, but (laughs) yeah. Um, I got help from the charity Matthew's friends, um, which was initially an epilepsy, uh, charity helping uh, children with drug-resistant epilepsy on ketogenic diets who then moved on to um, helping uh, brain tumor patients. And I guess the way they got their their in to doing that is that many uh, brain cancer patients have epilepsy as a result. So even from a quality of life point of view, it made sense to... uh, to to pursue them and for them to get involved in this area so i'm thankful for that i think they've been uh the, a, a big instigator in having uh these therapies available them and the charlie foundation available for brain cancer patients um so yeah that's a, lo- a long way of <laughs> answering your question but i hope i answered it adequately Hey Andrew, uh, just quick answer. Um, you you were diagnosed how long ago? So it was six and a half years ago now. Okay, and like um, I said, beginning the median survival is about two to three for for adults, and younger adults may do a little better than older adults, as as we would expect. So, but you're yeah, certainly defying the odds at this point. I think most well, people can see that. Also, also, the area of my, the area where I had significant brain damage from the hemorrhage and the subsequent surgery um, has been healing over time, which I was told would be impossible. So that's also another interesting thing. And my symptoms just have gotten better and better over time. But I did notice that if I slip out of my therapeutic zone of blood glucose and blood ketones, I immediately have... um, 
quite serious seizure activity to the point where it can progress to being uh, very serious. <laughs> um, because I'm on no medication, it's uh, I'm constantly managing that. But if 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 my blood ketones and blood glucose maintain in the therapeutic range, I feel fantastic and I have no symptoms at all. So <laughs> that's an interesting that was an interesting finding for me. What um, I would assume you still have an oncologist that maybe participates in your care, and, and if so, what is what is his thought at this point about uh, ketogenic diets and and what things are going on? Is he is he do you have a new one than the original one or where are you at with that person? Yeah. So I see Mr. Kevin O'Neill. He's a neuro, he's an, um, neurosurgeon as well as an oncologist. That's why he's a mister. So funny how you work so hard to be a doctor and then you study more and you, <laughs> you, you learn more and you become a mister again. I've always found that amusing, but he is uh, very supportive of the ketogenic diet and he is uh, heavily involved with the charity brain tumor research to bring more awareness of these metabolic therapies. And he's involved with the uh, clinical trials that will be uh, coming soon. Hopefully it's been in the pipeline for a few years and I've been consulted on how best to do that. But I think, I think we've come out, come up with, um, a good efficacious way of doing that whereby patients are actually monitoring their blood glucose and blood ketones and eating the right foods and um, having the right lifestyle because that's a huge thing as well. Um, and I'm, I'm at the, um, I help a lot of patients at Charing Cross Hospital to um, to adhere to these diets and to have social support with it because a lot of people just don't know how to do it properly. Along those lines, Andrew, one thing I always find really interesting about like the ketogenic diet or the carnivore diet or any diet that is considered by society is to be restrictive is this uh, message of like, oh, people can't adhere to it or it's too difficult to adhere to. And I always find that really fascinating because my first thought is like, well, that probably depends on your circumstance. It's like if you're relatively able-bodied or you maybe have some low-level discomforts and things like that, yeah, it can be very easy to kind of cheat on a quote-unquote restrictive diet. Like how has your perception either changed or your messaging to other folks changed about uh, something like that when, when for you it's like pretty obvious when you drift out of your, your therapeutic ranges, you're going to see some, some pretty altering situations? Well, I think with other brain tumor patients I've discussed this with, it's kind of a, a different situation because many of them are asymptomatic. So they don't get the kind of feedback that I get. If I eat the wrong thing, I instantly have that feedback of I'll have a seizure. So the motivation for me is much easier in that respect. So for some, it, they find it quite stressful to completely overhaul their diet and to cut out carbs so um for me i found that it was an interesting idea to even radically change my diet because i was always an emotional eater i had problems with um very serious problems with bulimia and binge eating before so um i realized that there was a huge 
social and emotional and lifestyle element to this. So I try to communicate that to others just by, um, just by education really and telling people how, by, by education and by example. So by sharing my story and by just explaining how it's, impacts on survival having high blood glucose during treatment and uh, because many patients are actually on dexamethasone um, for brain swelling and it, it's uh, it makes your blood sugar skyrocket to the to the uh, amount of a uh, type 2 diabetic so I try and educate patients to tell them that this is not a good thing <laughs> um, but it is very difficult. People are very, even people in the most horrible situations will say that it's stressful to <laughs> change their diet. But I would think it's stressful to have these symptoms and to be on these drugs for the brain swelling when the diet can help you to overcome that. And I was also on uh, Boswellia serrata to, to come off the uh, dexamethasone and to bring my blood sugar down because that's a huge problem. And um, just, it's an extremely stressful event when you're, when you have a diagnosis of brain cancer. So that in itself will probably make people want to eat out of comfort. So it's just communicating. It's just communication. And it's just saying that you're, even if you don't believe in this as a tool to manage the disease, it will impact positively on your quality of life. If you gradually go into it and just read the papers, I always carry papers with me for people to see if they think I'm just talking about some fad diet and it's just about educating people to me, to me and using the right words because I have had huge backlash from a number of cancer Facebook groups I'm in because, and a number of people I've known from not doing the whole vegan juicing thing that is quite popular amongst the alternative cancer community. Um, and I have had some abuse from that, but um, I've had more positive comments than that than not, but it's very hard to constantly have to dispel um, myths <laughs> about that that people come across. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but that, that's what I was thinking. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. 
They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Hey, Andrew, um, you know, I was just thinking that, you know, it may be that in your case, because you are so symptomatic with regard to migraine headaches and even developing seizures when you go off diet, it's almost kind of a blessing to you because you know when you're doing the wrong thing. And I suspect, you know, when you're eating the correct way or doing the other lifestyle things, and I know you're wearing, it looks like you're wearing blue blocking glasses there. I'm assuming that's also part of the plan, but um, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, that's such a powerful reinforcement tool that you have and you're almost, I wouldn't say lucky, but I mean, you know, some people don't have that for other diseases and they can't get the feedback that, Hey, I'm doing the wrong thing. And so other people, their diseases smolders and they continue to sort of feed the disease, so to speak. And I'm a huge, a huge believer that nutrition impacts pretty much every chronic disease out there. And I, and I know when we talk about cancer, people get all very, very emotional about it because it's often a life and death situation. And people want to say that, you know, it's silly to think that something is, devastating as cancer could possibly be affected by disease by nutrition to my to which i respond it's crazy to think it wouldn't it's just a disease like any other disease it's just you know its manifestation is different and so let me go on to um because i want to just get into a few more things that i know that you've kind of played with and then i want to get into your research because now you're looking at it you know from a more sort of an objective standpoint i mean obviously you have your personal bias but i want to know what the research you're looking at or what kind of research you're trying to do. And I want to learn more about that. But I know you've talked about entomophagy, which is, you know, insect eating. I know you've been uh, fairly carnivorous for, for quite some time now. And so maybe, and, and maybe you can talk about any other sort of things that are maybe non-food related that you've been doing to help with brain cancer. And then, and then let's delve into some the research you're kind of looking at it. And I don't know if, I mean, obviously with the epilepsy and, and brain tumor being such so well connected, and, and we know that ketogenic diets have been using epilepsies for, you know, 100 plus years now. And so that, that makes sense. But, you know, there's also talk about, you know, breast cancer and prostate cancer and all these other cancers that may benefit from ketogenic cell diets outside of brain cancer. But let's talk a little bit, a few more things that you might think have been helpful for you, and then we'll delve into your research in general and maybe cancer in general, if you don't mind. Okay, sounds good. Um, so, other things that other things that were helpful to me. So, how I got into eating strange foods. Strange foods, I guess you. Some people would say. Um, initially, it was looking into ancestral diets, and I wanted because my foods my foods were so limited at this point when I was excluding um, most of the foods I was consuming, uh, because my, the foods I was eating were so limited, um, I just decided to do a lot more research. And I noticed that the only foods that I could tolerate at that point were animal foods. So I thought, how can I do this with a diet that is the most nutrient dense that I could manage. So I looked in first, I looked into organ meats. So I then decided to, I was already eating liver, but um, 
I looked more into uh, the work of just the observations from Western A. Price. And I, there's another book, I can't remember what it was called, but it was very good. Um, Just again, looking at ancestral um, diets from different cultures. And I noted that not only were they consuming organ meats, but there was entomophagy was a huge part in it played a huge part in a part in our evolution um and then i thought well why is it that that has been largely ignored in what was then the paleo community which was still a big thing um so i decided to jump head first and start eating brains <laughs> initially as a, a fundraising thing and a novelty. I wanted to raise money for brain tumor research. So I thought I'd eat brains to do that. And I found that I actually really enjoyed them. And I found that they were high in DHA. And at the time, my whole idea was to follow a nutrient dense, high DHA ketogenic diet, because that would be the best thing for the brain. And in and around, I knew that in and around the site of brain tumors, you have this dysregulation of uh, fatty acids where you have uh, very high amounts of arachidonic acid and very low amounts of docosahexaenoic acid. So the long chain omega-3. So I then decided to eat lots of oily fish <laughs> um, and have make sure that all my food was all my meats were grass fed and uh, that my egg yolks were nice and orange which is the color they should be um, and I was just very uh, I was just very aware of what I was eating and I I stopped going to the supermarket for my food. I started going to my local butcher who is supplied by a local farm. And I went to the farm. And so I know I was very aware of what the animals were eating. And that was a big thing for me. So um, I just then became very strict on that. Um, And I decided to, because I liked to know where my food was coming from, I decided to experiment with eating insects. I started with crickets and locusts. Um, but after a while, I had some gastrointestinal uh, difficulties with them because they are high in animal fiber. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting to me that you, have, you can get all this fiber from insects and it's not a... And it's an animal, it's animal food rather than a plant food. And I came across some research about um, insects and their effect on the gut microbiome. They can have beneficial effects on on the gut. And uh, I found that quite interesting because initially I thought that it was just um, plant matter that you could get that from. But because I was having problems, I started to have problems with the, the crickets, um, and I'd eventually developed kidney stones from that, which wasn't pleasant. <laughs> I decided to uh, move on to more ketogenic insects. So I focused more on beetles and larvae. 
and I found that they had uh, they actually also had a better fatty acid profile. So I decided to eat waxworms, and I'd test my blood glucose and ketones after eating them, and I found that interestingly they kept me in my therapeutic zone. And then I tried eating what became my favorite food at the time, sweetbreads. And I found that they had a profound effect on my blood ketones and blood glucose. And they kept me satiated for a very long time. So I could, if I had eaten sweetbreads, I'd be, I'd be full for a long time. And I, I deci- then I decided to go on extended fasts because I felt so good not eating. So that, that's what got me into the fasting. And then I thought, after going on a few two and three day fasts, why not try for 10 days? And then I tried a 10 day fast, but on the ninth day I had a seizure. And then I thought, I thought, why did I have that seizure? So I began to look more at my electrolytes. And then I discovered that it was most likely due to the fact that I was expelling lots of fluid and not replacing the electrolytes. So I was then very focused on that. And then I was able to fast much more. Uh, So I did that, but then I lost too much weight. (laughs) And so although my seizure activity was controlled brilliantly, I was losing too much weight. So I then had to eat more. And then I just experimented with different macronutrient ratios and uh, different amounts of calories. And I had my body composition tested and then I worked my diet around that. And that's how I worked out how many calories I would need to maintain my weight. And I stuck with that. And now we are where we are. I'd have my electrolytes and my frankincense and my cannabidiol and I've got my ketogenic diet that works for me. Now I've added more, I've added some plants back in actually, and I can tolerate them, which is very interesting, especially after hearing people who go on carnivore diets and then going back to plants and then they come to the the conclusion that, that they can't tolerate the plants because they've been on a carnivore diet for so long. For me, it was the opposite. It seemed to actually allow me to heal to the point where I can eat these foods again. Um, I'm still, I'm still a night. I'm not about 90% carnivore, but I include some, some plants in there. Yeah, I think that's great, Andrew. And, I, and it's something that I've kind of, you know, talked a lot about, you know, because people sort of have this impression that I think everybody should be only eating meat and water. And it's it's not at all what I say. I say, I say that may be something you need to do for a period of time. And, and I tend to do that almost exclusively myself, but I don't necessarily think it's for everybody. But I'd be interested to see, you know, because if we look at, look at human evolution, it's probably we were hyper carnivores where we ate 70% of our food from animal food, maybe maybe even up to 100% at times for sure. Um, what, what plant foods are you able to tolerate? Because that'd be interesting. Uh, and, and I do think that, you know, the modern food is so devastating on the gut, uh, you know, the gut health itself. And I think once you restore that, you, you know, you, we do see, and I've seen other people, it's been interesting. I've seen people that 
were lactose intolerant that suddenly after going on carnivore for a period of time noticed that they could do better with dairy. Uh, and I know dairy is not your, your, your particular friend. And I find for me, dairy is generally a net negative, but sometimes I still do it. And it's not, you know, I don't get brain seizures or anything like that. I'm not dealing with something that you are, but what plant foods are you able to tolerate um, currently? It's interesting. Uh, the best foods for me plant-wise are olives. I seem perfectly fine with olives. I can also have some avocado, which was a huge trigger for me. So I'm amazed I can even tolerate even a bit of that. Um, I can have coconut oil now, which was, again, a massive trigger for me. It's kind of funny that people see coconut oil as this magical food, but for me it was... It wasn't the best. Um, I still don't have much of that. I, tr I tend to have more of the animal fats because that I seem to do best with them and my brain feels best with them, so I stick with what I know. Um, I can actually have some raw dairy now, high-fat dairy, which I couldn't before, but I only have a little bit of that occasionally. Um, and I can have a small amount of broccoli and I can have cauliflower, which before I couldn't have those foods. Um, but mainly olives. I enjoy having olives so. in That's olive oil, not sunflower. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good for you. That sounds like, like mostly fruit and then those two, uh, two cruciferous vegetables. So wonderful. Tell us about, now let's talk, let's get into your research because I think that's going to be interesting because uh, while brain cancer is, you know, I mean, it's, I certainly see, and I, you know, we had Tom Seafried on there and I've uh, seen a number of, of his, of his work and Travis Christopherson's book, you know, I'm sure you've, you've read that too, Tripping Over the Truth, I think is what the title of that. And it goes into, it's kind of the uh, layman's version of Seafried's book because Seafried's book is pretty uh, daunting and very technical, technically, uh, you know, dense. And so if you want an introduction into that stuff, it's, I think Tripping Over the Truth by Travis Christopherson is I guess I'd say his name is a good, good option. So tell us about your research now. What are you studying specifically and what are you learning and what can we learn about cancer and, and whatever diet, whatever other things that seem to be uh, uh, other than, you know, because, you know, just to quote, well, I'm not sure if I'm quoting Thomas, but I mean, it's like burn it, poison it, cut it out. You know, that's, that's kind of been our mantra for, you know, 50, 60 years and the way we treat cancer and maybe, the collateral collateral damage we're causing is not worth the, the gain for some people. Mm -hmm. Well, I have, I've been studying cancer biology and I've just submitted a quite detailed research proposal um, for looking at the effect of uh, different cannabinoids on brain cancer cells and uh, that's just, uh, I'm currently writing another research proposal looking at um, the effect of commercially available ketone salts on uh, human-derived, patient-derived uh, brain cancer cells. So a lot of this research is on immortalized cell lines, but... I think that it would be interesting, which is why I proposed to, to do this research. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to look at the, uh, look at this on human cells and 
look at these commercially available ketone salts and how they compare to the ketone esters that are used in uh, the research. Because the interesting thing is that when you look at these rodent models of the ketogenic diet, you do see changes in gene expression and you see effects so that the ketones, the ketone bodies appear to have, particularly BHB, uh, the 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 effects that 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 has on its own, regardless of this the oversimplification of saying, oh well, cancer cells predominantly use glucose as a fuel. Um, I think that it, what my research is aiming to do is to look beyond that, um, but also to look to look at it as a patient scenario. So another idea that I had, which I've been told by um, the lab that I will be working in over the summer at Imperial, is that um, I had the idea that, well, patients are also on, typically on anti-epileptic drugs, and certain anti-epileptic drugs complement the ketogenic diet and others are antagonistic to it. And some appear to confer a, a survival benefit. So why not try and combine some of these anti-epileptic drugs with um, a model of the ketogenic diet and see the effects of that? Because that has never been done before. Um, but there could be a benefit. For example, in some tumors that can actually use fats for energy, if you're on the... Uh, if you're on valproic acid, which is epilim, which is the one of the anti-epileptic drugs that I was on, it actually blocks that pathway that the uh, fatty acid synthase pathway inhibits that so that the tumor can't use the the fats for energy because some can. But if you're on that drug, you're you're kind of targeting both those energy systems. You're helping to prevent the uptake of glucose by keeping insulin lower, preventing the hypersecretion of insulin and the associated growth factors. But you're also targeting this fatty acid pathway. And when you're keeping the protein moderate, you're attempting to attenuate for the glutamine, which... I think uh, isn't as huge of an issue as as I think it can be. <laughs> I think I think it's a bigger issue if you have um, a very aggressive brain tumor, so one that's a lot more diffuse because it will use everything for energy. It'll use different amino acids. It'll use glucose. It'll use fats. It'll use nucleic acids. Um, so I think the biggest uh, the biggest um, promise for me is that these clinical trials that will be coming into place are not just on high-grade gliomas. They're also on low-grade gliomas, which are much more glycolytic. So, And they're, they're much slower growing as well. So if you have these patients on a ketogenic diet and you're adding these other things in, it would be you could see you could potentially see a, a much greater benefit 
so we what we need is we need more lower grade brain tumor patients trying these things because there are no options for them and um my girlfriend actually has an inoperable brain tumor as well so um it could potentially benefit her to have um these kind of treatments because it's theoretically a lot more glycolytic and you can actually see that on scans it's yeah it appears to be apparent Andrew, let me ask you about protein a little bit. How much uh, protein do you usually take in a day? I know there's a little bit in, in the carnivorous community, there's kind of an ongoing back and forth between those that feel that higher protein is more effective for, you know, and I'd say in my experience, it tends to be people that are more interested in athletic performance, muscle mass, and so on and so forth, which is not surprising. And other people that seem to do better with higher fat approach, a little bit lower protein approaches, particularly those dealing with disease processes. So where, where, where do you stand on protein or what works for you with regard to fat protein ratios? Cause I know, I think you follow paleo, keto, paleo, the paleolithic ketogenic uh, style, which is the PKD or the uh, two to one ratio, but where are you at right now with regard to protein? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't even know the paleolithic ketogenic diet was a thing until I was contacted by the, <laughs> these, this group and, they they said, can we interview you about the Paleolithic ketogenic diet? And then they were telling me that about what they what they do. And then I thought, oh, other people are actually doing this. This is interesting. Um, so yeah, I was aware of the whole protein debate. I find that interesting because I've experimented with different amounts of protein, and to me, it's it seems to be more about what you eat because for me with my epilepsy, I find that I can eat more protein if it comes from oily fish than I can from liver. Uh, maybe it's the glycogen in the liver, I don't know. <laughs> um, but the, there are some foods that I appear to be able to eat more, so then I can actually have more protein some days and others with certain foods, I have to limit my amount of what I eat. So um, it's an interesting question that I don't know the answer to because I think it's very variable as well. Um, but for me, I started with the recommended amount, which was a very low amount of protein, which I really struggled on. And I lost too much weight, so I brought the protein level up quite significantly. I started with um, 65 grams of protein, which was much too low for me because I was starting to do exercise as well, and I'd lost too much weight, and I was getting less energy. Um, um, so then I went up to about 90 grams of protein. Um, and then I did more exercise and over time I found that I could go even up to a hundred grams of protein and still have my same um, levels of blood ketones and blood glucose. So the figures didn't actually change that much. They changed more when I increased carbs or if I ate more um, liver and red meat, interestingly. Red meat increased my blood blood glucose, but if I ate it slowly <laughs> or a very very fatty cut, um, it didn't really change that much. 
Hey, Andrew, you mentioned earlier that um, when you had been doing exercise and stuff before finding some of the nutritional benefits that it would cause you to have the epileptic seizures, but now you're able to do more exercise. What was like the re-entry into exercise like? Like what kind of things were you doing? And then maybe like how scary was it to attempt it for the first time knowing what could possibly happen given your prior experiences? Well, I tried getting back into running and weight training because at the time I was just walking. I was just going for long walks. And when I was still having lots of seizures, I had a step in my room, an aerobic step, and I would just go up and down on the step. It was pretty boring, but it was something to do. Uh, But I found when I got into more glycolytic activity, my seizure threshold would lower and I would have a seizure if I pushed myself too hard. Um, And then from that, I tried to gradually increase the intensity and I found that if my breathing rate was, um, if I could regulate my breathing rate, I could increase the intensity to a point, but then it would still be a bit too intense. So I then experimented with exogenous ketones and training and I was able to increase my intensity with that, which was quite interesting. It was quite rapid as well, uh, quite fast acting, which I was surprised at. Um, at this point, I was also sensitive to sweeteners and caffeine, so I couldn't have any of the exogenous ketones that had any sweetness or caffeine in because um, they can trigger seizures for me too. Even the stevia can, unless it's the actual leaf, which is interesting. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, to, I, I focused mainly on, I had to, I found I had to increase my recovery time. So I was working either more, uh, more in the anaerobic, more anaerobic, so like power type um, strength training um, or or the other kind of realm of being purely aerobic and allowing my breathing rate and my uh, allowing my heart rate to kind of normalize at a higher level and my breathing rate to um, adjust for the demands, the kind of lactate threshold, I guess you could say. That's, that seems to be my sticking point. When I'd get closer to my lactate threshold, um, my seizure threshold would go down. But then with improved fitness, I found that my seizure threshold would would improve. So that's I could be have more intense training, which I found quite interesting as well. Andrew, when was the last time you had a seizure? Just just uh, for, for for reference. Well, I get partial seizures whenever I encounter a, a trigger. Uh, a trigger could be, for example, the other day I passed some um, construction workers doing road work and I had a partial seizure from the the fumes. Um, so uh, chemicals is one. <laughs> um, poor sleep. If I get poor sleep, I can have partial seizures. If I have caffeine uh, stimulants, um, stress. So I stay very calm all the time. I'm a very calm person these days. I don't get stressed much. Um, my sleep quality is very good. Um, I wear these because if I expose myself to 
too much blue light, artificial blue light, it can be problematic and it's too stimulatory. Um, stuffy rooms, I always have to be in a ventilated room. I've had stuffy rooms give me seizures. Um, but I haven't had a, a, a serious seizure for, must be about five years now. And that was a breakthrough seizure. And a breakthrough seizure is just um, when you're not having any seizures and then it just happens. It's like a spontaneous thing. And yeah, I haven't had any. And my symptoms continue to improve, so I get less of these partial seizures. Even exposed to those, uh, even when I have those exposures, but one thing that I found is uh, that flying can provoke seizures too. So that's an interesting one. I have to fast when I fly, um, even to the point of sometimes needing to fast the day before. So if I'm on a prolonged fast, it improves my seizure threshold to the point that I can even tolerate a long distance flight. Um, I found the same thing in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber. It provoked uh, quite uh, quite bad seizures for me, um, which I had to very quickly remedy by um, alerting the people outside the chamber and uh, taking my magnesium and exogenous ketones. Um, but eventually in the hyperbaric chamber, I noticed that I could use um, an air brake technique that's actually used um, by the Marines when they're acclimatizing to these depths um, so that they don't have these oxygen toxicity seizures. They adopt this technique, which is kind of like training your alveoli in your lungs to be able to uptake this 100% oxygen in the pressurized environment. And... I applied that to my situation with the seizures that were being provoked um, for me. And over time, I actually adapted to, the, to that, uh, that kind of uh, stressor, that, that, that stimulus. And like with the exercise, I trained myself to be able to take even very high pressures in the chamber, which was quite something. <laughs> It's a bit crazy, and they didn't. They wanted to stop me being in the chamber because they thought I was a bit mad. But uh, I had faith in it, and it actually seemed to work for me. Yeah, I find that I, I have to fast on airplanes too, just because they serve junk. <laughs> oh, that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't even I don't even drink on planes because I would yeah, have I might, the water. I'll have some water typically, but I, a lot of times I just don't do anything. Like I flew back from Austin yesterday, and I just you know I don't need anything. But um, let me ask you because your partial seizure are you just getting like uh, aura or I mean what's what are you like noises and smells? I mean what what are your what are your partial seizures like? Are you getting motor sensory symptoms or how does that play out for you? Well, for me because it's around. Uh, well, it's three different parts of my brain that get affected. Um, I can get sensations where I feel dizzy and sick and my speech can go. My speech was, my speech is hugely affected. So the actual ability, the ability for me to form sentences as I am now is 
quite something if you were to see what I was like after my hemorrhage. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, my speech can completely go. So uh, <laughs> I suddenly, I, I physically, I just lose the ability to speak um, or I can't think of words or I have um, this side of my face um, loses feeling and I get um, twitches. I get tingling in my tongue in the back of my throat um, and it can radiate down my right side and uh, I can lose my balance. So yeah, when uh, I had the partial seizure w with the, uh, the, the chemicals, I had to find a place, a scamper to a place where I could rest and recover and just, um, I've had times where I've just sat on the pavement because <laughs> I haven't been able to move. Um, and then after a while I'm fine and I can get up and get on with my day, but it looks a bit funny, but that hasn't happened in a long time. And my actual threshold to these chemicals and these uh, stimuli actually appears to have been improving over the years. So now it's just like a mild irritant rather than being something serious. Even when I encounter these, these, uh, triggers, which is, it's quite nice because I can, I can have a, a normal life. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's an interesting case study to my oncologist because he finds it quite fascinating <laughs> and, um, it's nice to be able to point to point people to the new scientist article that I was featured in a few years ago, because there are lots of skeptics with these kinds of stories. You get lots of uh, cancer patient anecdotes out there and you don't know who to believe or how much of it is uh, misconception and, or how much is uh, accurate. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, yeah. Hey, Andrew, if you could go back, um, you know, to the beginning when you first were diagnosed with the cancer, um, would you have undergone the chemo radiation? Would you have done that? Because I know like uh, when we talked to Sophia Clemens, uh, her sort of response is the patients seem to do better when they don't have it, which is extremely, extremely controversial. And we're well, well, well aware of that. But do you feel that the radiation and the cancer, because a lot of times we, we, uh, you know, we do that to sort of, you know, you know, shrink the tumor, debulk the tumor, um, you know, just for a mass effect. Because sometimes they they're they're large and they press on vital structures, particularly in the brain, where it can be a, can be an issue. But what are your thoughts on on the necessity of chemo and radiation? And uh, you know, just I know this is controversial, but I'd like to get your opinion. I think that's a great question because actually, when I was researching this. And looking at the genetic profile of my tumor, when I um, found the papers that were detailing the MGMT uh, methylation status and um, IDH1, uh, IDH1 status, I was IDH1 wild type and unmethylated for MGMT, which was actually in the literature, it was described as being controversial to give chemotherapy in that situation. <laughs> so um, the fact that it's, it's overall seen as a, a controversial thing not to have it is 
interesting for me because there's this idea of, oh, well, we have to do something. But uh, the literature was actually on my side and saying, well, actually, this is, it's controversial to give it for these subset of patients because there's no evidence to say in that situation that there's any benefit. But I, I can't, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that in my specific situation, that was the case. And I had my, te- my, I had my tumor tested for so many things and I had it tested many times because over the years, um, it was asked just, ah, oh, did we get the diagnosis right? Because it's been so long and I had all the, the genetic profile suggested that it was a tumor that had a very uh, poor prognosis, even, even within these um, ambiguous categories that you have. Um, mine was uh, termed a, a type of anaplastic astrocytoma, but within that you have a vast range of uh, subsets of different tumors, and mine was on the more aggressive spectrum of that um, but so it, it's interesting that uh, even it's seen as controversial, but I don't think we've had enough patients that actually say no to the treatments to even to even suggest that there's a clear benefit. And when you have a benefit, it's often them saying that they appear to survive sometimes even just a few weeks or months later. And that's not, I don't think that's uh significant so i in my case i regret having any treatment andrew i want to kind of hop back to with when you're talking about kind of the fasting and the therapeutic effects that that had and then um i mean it doesn't take a genius to realize there's a margin of diminishing return with fasting at some point you have to break that fast and eat um or you know you won't live too long but uh what role does that play in kind of like how you structure your meals? Like, do you, are you trying to take advantage of eating like as much as you possibly can from a caloric standpoint and skewing to much fewer mule meals than what maybe someone would typically do in order to take advantage of the fasting as well as possible without the weight loss? Well, initially I was probably doing it the worst way possible. <laughs> and I realized that, uh, after I'd lost too much weight. And then I decided to try the same thing, but take a multivitamin that didn't have iron and copper in it uh, because that's what I was advised. I was told you shouldn't have iron and copper in uh, anything you take like that uh, supplementally because it's not good for the cancer, supposedly. Um, But now I just fast spontaneously and I eat normally. as normal as I can, um, well, a normal ketogenic diet, but I don't know. I don't know about that. I think it's, uh, interesting because some days I purposely have higher calories than other days, uh, because I had problems in the past. So it's mainly, it sounds unscientific, but my approach has been a very trial and error, um, focused approach. And I have had various, uh, blood tests and poo tests and <laughs> uh, saliva cortisol tests and um, 
I've had uh, EEGs and ECGs and <laughs> everything um, just to to test to see if what I'm doing is helpful or harmful. And uh, again, just with the MR spectroscopy, I think that's an important thing to mention again, just because only a handful of places seem to have this, but it could be an invaluable tool for monitoring uh, efficacy of uh, any kind of metabolic therapy. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm healthy. <laughs> I'm eating nutrient dense foods and I'm now trying to um, hit my protein target every day. Uh, Cause I was having, I, I realized I wasn't having enough protein before. And I was getting um, brittle nails um, and lack of energy. Um, but I feel great since I upped the protein. So, And uh, my seizure threshold is very high, especially at the moment. It's pretty high at the moment. And you, you say, and you said you get your girlfriend uh, is also a um, brain tumor uh, gal. Um, is she managing her condition similarly, or how's, how's it going for? If you don't mind sharing her yeah, story, she stuff. she actually works for Brain Tumor Research, um, who fund these uh, metabolic. <laughs> they fund research into these metabolic therapies. So I met her through Brain Tumor Research, and she's adopted a ketogenic diet um and she's thinking of adding some uh repurposed drugs that target different pathways and and can uh can go well with a uh ketogenic approach so that can complement the ketogenic approach um because she needs to really go quite heavy with it quite full on because uh it's a tumor that's growing even though it's slow growing it's quite close to crucial structures in the brain so um it's just about coming up with a a cocktail of different press pulse approaches as uh, thomas seyfried would like to say the press pulse and we do follow the glucose ketone index for therapeutic efficacy because she doesn't have any seizure activity. Um, so it's just monitoring it with the GKI and uh, seeing what things we can add to that. But she's uh, mentally doing very well. Yeah, I'm thinking that, uh, and maybe you know the answer to this, because we had Thomas, Dr. Tom Seifert on what's been almost a year and a half, or it was quite a while ago, Zach, I mean, it's one of our earlier episodes, very popular, and he was very, uh, very passionate, and I just wonder what kind of progress he's made in that last year and a half. I know one of the sort of the uh, big issues was dealing with glutamate, because, you know, the, you know, glucose was something you could eat more easily, you know, minimize exposure to, uh, but glutamate was more of a challenge, because we endogenously make quite a bit of glutamate, you know, in addition to being in many foods, but do you know, do you know if that, that issue is being, how that issue is being, being worked right now? Are you close enough to the research to know what they're doing with regard to glutamate? Well, interestingly for my thesis, I looked at uh, another amino acid. I looked at arginine because uh, with high grade gliomas, you have uh, 
you have a, for many tumors, you have an uptake of arginine and it's even more so than glutamine. So that's, uh, it's not always glutamine. That's the, the sec, the kind of secondary fuel, if you like. Um, so yeah, it's difficult to say and talk about these glutamine inhibitors. Cause I think that's a new area of research, but I was looking at arginine deprivation <laughs> and that, that seemed to have, uh, quite potent effects. Um, so that I, yeah, I just found that, that when I found, uh, that when, when I was doing those experiments, I found that pretty interesting, uh, cause I didn't know too much about that before. Um, but I think, um, to give you a patient example, I don't know if you know of Pablo Kelly or if Professor Seyfried mentioned him, he had a, an inoperable glioblastoma. It must've been about five years ago. I know it was not too far off from, uh, when I was diagnosed six and a half years ago. Uh, he, he was about a year off, I think. So he had an inoperable glioblastoma and uh, he went on a very strict ketogenic diet with a number of supplements. And I think he was taking ECGC as well, which is um, kind of an active ingredient in green tea. And that appears to be uh, somewhat inhibitory of this glutamine pathway, I guess. Um, this pathway involved with glutamine uptake. Um, and over time, his tumor actually became less um, angiogenic. So the diet and his supplements appeared to have an anti-angiogenic effect, whereby eventually he was actually able to have his inoperable tumor operated on a few years later. <laughs> and um, he's still doing very well now, over five years now. <laughs> um, and I, I just like to point to him as a, an extraordinary case of someone who, uh, had this, uh, dire prognosis of having a quite a large inoperable glioblastoma to now, um, having had that operated on when it was thought to be impossible, had most of it removed. And, uh, it's, been stable ever since so maybe for him um because that's a, a a case of a a worse tumor than mine even um it's quite spectacular because he didn't have any chemotherapy or radiotherapy and he didn't even have surgery until it was possible and if you look there are sometimes these cases but uh Usually they have had some kind of treatment, but in his case, he hasn't had anything. It's quite notable. So I thought I'd mention him. Yeah, I do. In fact, now that, I, now that you recognize it or, or say that, I think, I think uh, Dr. Seifer did, did mention him. So it's good to hear he's still going and, you know, surviving. And, and that's, that's gives hope to a lot of people. And so it's wonderful. Well, Andrew, any uh, last minute stuff you'd like to chat about? Tell us where you're, you're located, how do people can follow you if you're interested in interacting with them or, or anything like that? Yeah, well, I have a website. It's uh, 
braincanceroptions.com. I need to update it, but it's got some good stuff on there. Um, I'm biased, but I'm saying it's good. Uh, I have uh, a YouTube channel as well, but I, I usually don't like people following me. <laughs> it, it's just a small channel and it's just me talking about my thoughts. Um, I also am on Twitter. I'm at ASCARBS, A-S-C-A-R-B-S. I realize the irony of having carbs in my name, my Twitter name, but that's just how it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, people can contact me if they like, if they want to hear more, if they want to hear more about this clinical trial as well, because it's unique, it's, um, very strictly monitored, uh, and, uh, it's both high and low grade brain tumors. And, uh, I'm involved with that, which is quite nice. I had some involvement in helping to devise that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to come on the show, Andrew. And for listeners who are interested, our episode with uh, Professor Thomas Seafried was episode 40. So you're right, Sean, we're about 100 or so episodes from that one. So um, maybe it's time to reach back out to, to Thomas and see if he wants to come and share anything new. Uh, but we'll link that stuff to the show notes, Andrew. And um, so thanks again for, for coming on. No problem. It's a pleasure. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.